From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus podcasts in between seasons where we have conversations with filmmakers about some of our favorite 30 for 30 films. This week on 30 for 30 Plus, a look at one of the most infamous incidents in the history of sports. What happened? What happened? And she said, somebody hit me. In 1994, just six weeks before the Winter Olympics, an unknown assailant clubbed figure skater Nancy Kerrigan on the knee. Suspicion soon fell to Kerrigan's rival, Tanya Harding, and her ex-husband, Jeff Galuli. The attack sparked a media firestorm and FBI investigations. Kerrigan came back to win silver in the Olympics, and Harding was eventually banned from the sport and became a pariah in both skating and to the public at large. To this day, the Harding-Kerrigan story sparks fascination and loads of questions. It's a soap opera come to life. The people that wrote As the World Turns and The Guiding Light, they'd have died for some plot line like this. They'd have have just said, my God, is that real? So this week, we get two takes on that wild plot line with two people who have made films about Tanya Harding. Nanette Burstein directed the 30 for 30 documentary The Price of Gold, which came out in 2014, and Stephen Rogers wrote the screenplay for the new movie I, Tanya, which is nominated for three Oscars this year. A quick word of warning, this episode contains some strong language. Okay, let's get into the conversation. Nanette, Stephen, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Have you guys connected before? Is this the, the first yeah, time you sort of swapped lunch. notes about this story? No, or no? we had lunch yes? after Stephen read the script. We sat down and talked about the film. I mean, Nanette's Price of Gold is really what, what drew me to do this in the first place. She was like the big inspiration. I mean, I imagine that for both of you, one thing you had to think about a lot in your respective mediums was, you know, what's new here? This is a story that a lot of people have heard of, certainly people of a certain age. So, Nanette, how did you kind of tackle that central question of, like, how can I add to what is already a pretty well-known story? Well, when a story becomes a media frenzy and it's happening in the moment, you only get the larger-than-life story points. And for most people, they literally imagine that Tanya Harding showed up at the rank in Club Nancy Kerrigan on the Knee. Everybody in society thinks I was the one who did this. They want to hit me with sticks and baseball bats or whatever. (laughs) And there's so much that they lost in the story. There's so much that they didn't understand about the story. There's so much that the story said about gender, about class, that really was just completely missed in the news frenzy of it. And I was actually amazed that no one had tackled this as a film. I also felt like since it was the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle and they had to fill everything, what we got was not at all a nuanced picture. It was pretty black and white. Everybody in the world assumed that Tanya Harding was part of it. Do you hate Tanya Harding? Oh, yes, she is definitely, definitely a loser. Go, Nancy, you know. Nancy fit the mold. Beautiful, snow white, who was so graceful on the ice. She was perfect. It was the supreme ice princess versus the trailer trash ignoramus. It was really reduced down to this person is the villain and this person is the princess. And to uh, sort of delve deeper, it's like, well, there was nowhere to go but up. Hmm. You know, as as Stephen said, like the whole... The way it was portrayed in the media was black and white. There were no grays. And Tanya's life is gray. 
everything about her, her skating career, everything is is unclear and gray, and there's so much more to uh, investigate and and reflect on. But but one thing you're kind of getting at, I think, is this is this large question of of sympathy and how sympathetic a character Harding is. I guess both in the real world and then in the worlds of the two films that you. Uh, made so, Stephen. Like, where do you land on that uh, about how we should feel about her? Um, I, she's not an easy person, you know, and uh, and I think she's a complicated person. So that that, that she's not warm and fuzzy. And I don't think she she wants to be. Um, I never wanted to say, oh, this person is the hero and this person is the villain. All I wanted to do was say, there's more to the story, and here's more. And so, before you judge really harshly, let's get a, a, a bigger picture. There's a lot about her life that lends itself to empathy. I mean, she had a hard knock life. You know, she she not only grew up very poor, but her mother was abusive. She was an alcoholic. But more than that, even Tanya had this prodigious talent in a sport that was not accepting of who she was. Ice skating, I think, it's a very snob sport. It's a very snob sport. There's no question that Tanya Harding was not the image that figure skating wanted. So imagine being a child prodigy of something, and they're like, yeah, we don't really like your kind, even though you're amazing at it. And she had to fight against that her whole career. Here she was, the ugly duckling with frizzy blonde hair from the wrong side of the tracks. It was hardly that little image that you have of a beautiful ice skater. You were expected to act and perform in a very feminine way. And Tanya's definitely her own person. And I never was after being an ice princess. <laughs> I wasn't the dainty little girl. Tanya was a tomboy. And that she did not hide from whatsoever. She was very unapologetic about who she is and who she was. She called herself a redneck. You know, when the judges were really looking for this very pageanty, old-timey version of what they said a woman was supposed to be, and she just, she wouldn't do it. No, it's true. Because Nancy was a tomboy, too, growing up, but she learned to play the game, and Tanya refused. She's yeah. like, I'm not going to do that. This is who I am, and that's what I want to explore in my skating. This is a huge theme in both of your films, and it was actually really wonderful to watch both of them back to back and compare and contrast. And notice that you you both kind of linger at some pivotal moments. So I was wondering if we could talk about one of those, which is a scene, a moment where there's a confrontation. I guess pretty early in Tanya's skating career between her and the judges. And I'm just curious to get both of your takes on how you sort of decided to address that scene. So Nanette, you want to start and kind of set the stage for for that moment and why it felt so emblematic? It was very emblematic because 50% of your score at the time was subjective. It was based on this artistic notion, you know, not only your grace on the ice, but your musical choices and your costume. You know, Nancy Kerrigan wore, had Vera Wang design her costumes, which were very white and black and simple and sleek and elegant. Tanya liked sparkle. She liked color. She liked stuff that was louder. And Tanya made her own costumes. You know, a lot of it was financial, but it was also her taste. There was one year that I had like a bright pink color that I made myself. I mean, it was really pretty. And they flat out told her, according to her, that if you ever wear something like that again, you're not getting, you're not going to win. And I told them where to go. I said, well, you know what? If you can come up with $5,000 for a costume for me, then I won't have to make it. 
But until then, stay out of my face. I mean, her big crime, according to them, was being poor. You know, and, and that wouldn't do. They wanted the princess, and, you know, to them, she was the maid. And so, Stephen, you have the luxury to sort of dramatize this moment, and you do it actually on the ice. Hey, how do I get a fair shot here? Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? This is how it's done. Some of these girls have paid their dues. I don't give a shit. I outskated them today. We also judge on presentation. That's the fun of what I get to do. You know, I get to, I get to sort of heighten it because you, the, the big thing you want to be is entertaining. I took, you know, where she said, well, if you can give me $5,000 for a dress, otherwise get out of my face. Till then, just stay out of my face. Maybe you're just not as good as you think. But then what I added was her telling the judge, suck my dick. And by the way, Tanya said that that's the one line that she wishes she did say. <laughs> you made her dreams come true, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Next, we'll hear how Nanette Burstein and Stephen Rogers handled one of the most difficult aspects of Tanya Harding's story, the physical and emotional abuse of her childhood and marriage to Jeff Galuli. More after the break. I never get to skate again, ever, in competition. I'm kicked out of the association. But yet, we'll let her skate in the Olympics. That's fine. Let her skate. It's okay. She won't win. She won't get the marks that she deserves. She won't get anything in her life to do with skating ever again. Ever, ever again. Price of Gold, obviously a documentary, so it's centered on these interviews with Tanya Harding and the others around her. But I, Tanya, kind of has that too. The first thing we see is this title card that says this is all based on interviews with Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli. And then there's these dramatized interview clips weaved throughout a narrative film. Everyone remembers the incident differently, and that's a fact. I mean, it's what you all came for, folks. The fucking incident. The incident? <laughs> The fucking incident. So, Stephen, why why that choice? Why did you decide to kind of put the element of interviews, real-seeming interviews, in the film? Once I interviewed Jeff along with Tanya, they, their stories were just completely different. They remembered virtually nothing the same. Uh, I, it, it suddenly became much more about truth and the perception of truth and what we tell ourselves to live with ourselves. You know, not just for the Tanya character or Jeff's character. I mean, according to Tanya, nothing is her fault. In interviewing her, she's talking about getting a DUI, and she didn't even have her car keys on her. And I was like, well, you know, but that's what she tells herself. And that's why I wanted to do it in the documentary style, because everybody is trying to control the narrative and say, this is what happened, you know. But I think that's very human. I had the same experience, Stephen. Everything was not her fault. Every incident that happened in her life was somebody else's fault. And so you have to take everything she says and the people around her with a grain of salt. So you found a, a great way to to deal with that by saying, okay, th there are unreliable narrators in this yeah. story. There's a sort of Rosh these Rashomon moments where exactly. you get everyone to Exactly. And I had in. to do the same thing. Sure. But it's more challenging in a fiction film to do that even. But again, when you, you know, when, when Tanya is saying, like, nothing is her fault – 
to me, it was like, well, why is she saying that? And then I was thinking, well, I think probably if you're abused and you get hit by the time, you know, since you're four or something, that isn't your fault. So maybe it stems from that. And then you try and think, well, how can I dramatize that? Let's talk a little bit about the the abuse and the way that you each handled um, the abusive relationships in her life, but then also the way that she seems, that Tanya Harding seems to kind of um, tie that to just the way she was treated in public. So how did you kind of grapple with that notion of abuse and attack and, and her being under assault throughout her whole life? It's pretty well documented, you know, not just from Tanya, but from other people around her. Uh, the, when I interviewed Tanya and I interviewed Jeff, like I said, they didn't agree on anything. The single thing they both agreed on was Lavana, mm-hmm. Tanya's mother. There just was never anything good enough for her. She said I would never amount to anything, that I was fat, that I was ugly, and that was just it. If there's no you-can't-do-it type thing, she won't do it. She's a good mother, but she's not a good mother. She hits me, and she beats me. For me, obviously, I don't have footage of her literally hitting her. No, I'm not sure anyone would want to see that in a documentary setting, but... I mean, not only do I have other people telling these harrowing stories who have witnessed it besides Tanya, but there's this moment that was filmed, which wasn't a a physical abuse, but it was a verbal abuse that is so moving. She has just competed, and she's young. She's a teenager, and she's telling her mom, you know, that she came in six, and she's excited. Hi, Mom. Um, I got six. Yeah, overall. And her mom just abuses her on the phone and 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 completely degrades her because, you know, it wasn't just physical abuse. It was emotional abuse as well. No, I did it, but I did a loop in the side. I know. Yes, it does. It, I got half credit for it, Mom. Yep. Okay, love you too. Bye. What a bitch. My mom said that, um, she goes, so I heard you missed your combination. You know, you didn't get any credit at all for that. And I said, Mom, she goes, you did terrible. You know that. I said, you suck. And I said, Mom, I got half credit for it. She goes, so the rest of the program sucked also. And I said, Mom, no, it didn't. And she goes, well, just as long as you tried. And I said, I did. And to have that captured on film and watch it and just let that whole clip play out, it was like the longest clip in the film, really says it all. Yeah, that was something that Margot Robbie watched over and over and, and spoke about quite often, you know, from, from The Price of Gold. And to say that just informed her so much because she is, she's so vulnerable. And then you see at the end of it how she's so sort of defensive and you, and you just think. You see her get into her tough mode. Yeah, and you and that was the progression that Margot, as an actress, you know, had to plan out and chart out. She went from, you know, an abusive childhood to kind of an abusive relationship. I had met Jeff at the ice rink, but we got married for all the wrong reasons. I had to get away from my mother. You know, he hit me, but she hit me, and, you know, but they loved me. 
That line was so telling. I mean, she said, you know, so many different ways of describing that story. And in these, like, three sentences, it summed up everything of someone who is abused by their parents, someone they love. They think that is a sign of love. So when they go to seek out their partner in life or anyone in life, they think, well, it's normal. If they're going to abuse me, that means they actually love me. But that's what she tells herself. And Jeff, you know, says, like, he never hit her. He says she had a manager that, when they were getting divorced, told her to say that so he, he wouldn't get any money because he thought that Jeff was going to ask for money. Now, there are police reports that tell a different story, but the things that we tell ourselves interested me. And uh, when you talk to Tanya about it, she's very sort of disassociated from it. She's very sort of matter-of-fact about it. There's a distance there. This next level of... Um abuse and feeling sort of um, attacked and abused that in the film, you know, there's a line in um, I, Tanya, remind me if I if I if I screw this up, Stephen, where she basically says, you're you're all my attackers. Now she sort of looks at the world and says, I had attackers in my personal life, but now everyone has been attacking me. Now, Nat, was that something you kind of explored in in the documentary? Was that something you felt from Tanya that she felt like constantly under assault, not just by people she knew, but just in a larger sense? Yes. I mean, she, yes, she felt abuse in her personal life. She talked about the world being against her. The media. No, guys, get out. Come on. Leave me alone. Do you have any comment for us? She was trying to train for the Olympics, and obviously she's at the center of a giant media frenzy. Hey, Tanya, what do you have to hide? Tanya, how are you feeling? There were thousands of reporters watching her in a shopping mall every day. And the shopping mall, just to, to sort of paint the picture for folks, that's her hometown rink in Portland, the I guess? The only place she could afford to train yeah. was a public rink in the center of a shopping mall, and so she couldn't keep the press out from her. Tanya could not leave the ring with them from falling to her apartment or falling her to this or falling her to that. She just did not have a life. Going into 94, crews were told, morning, noon, and night, go get Tanya. Flush her out, get her to talk. You know, literally having her car towed so they could get a clip of her running out to try to save her car from being towed. The media would set off my alarm on my truck. Anything to get a snapshot. Are you going to skate, Tanya? I'm taking the day off. Jesus Christ, get out of my way. The media is, they, they don't care about anything except themselves and their paycheck. There's something we talk about on the podcast side when we're making these about, um, we call it like active tape, which is like you can have an interview with someone where they're sort of describing stuff that happened, but then... The next level is where something kind of actually happens in the interview or there's a scene or there's some motion or some change. There were a couple moments in the documentary where Tanya Harding seems like she is grappling with stuff for the first time on camera in front of you. I mean, talk about sort of compelling active tape. Nancy's a princess. You know, that's how everybody's seen her. She's a princess and I'm a pile of crap. But that's okay. It's, you know what, it's not okay. It's not okay. How I was treated by everybody out there was not okay. Do you want to talk about those moments and, like, w whether you really felt like she was going yeah. there for the first time at maybe ever? 
Well, I don't think she had talked about this story in a number of years. Yeah. And I also, she had agreed to do a full day interview with me, which is a very long time to keep going over your life story on tape. And so she would, you know, she has her rehearsed statements that she gives all the time. And I'd watch them in the media and... Um, but she ultimately started to break away from those. And, and that moment where she reveals her jealousy towards Nancy, which is something she never wanted to reveal. And she actually did regret it later. She's like, I can't believe I said that. I really regret saying that. Um, but that was her true feelings that came out. She just knew that she should not share them with the public, that she was that resentful because then people think, oh, you're guilty. You really did hate her. But that is how she felt. And there is some validity to how she felt because it's true. Nancy was treated like the queen and she had to struggle with the identity that she had to make it not only in the skating world, but in the world of public judgment. Hmm. If we can kind of take a big step back and look at the sort of sweep of history where this story stands right now. To Tanya Harding's point that this narrative was taken away from her in 1994 – in the you know many years since, we've had a 30 for 30 documentary, a feature film, a big, long profile in The Times. There have been a lot of sort of Tanya Harding re, you know, reclaiming the narrative moments. Where on that cycle are we now? Do we feel like we've reached some sort of equilibrium or perhaps even gone in the other direction where the only one we're hearing from is Tanya Harding and she's kind of like – been able to control the the narrative in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. But I don't know if she has been able to control the narrative in the sense that there are people like Stephen and I that are taking what she says and creating a, a story out of it and trying to be as objective that's as possible. Yeah. yeah, that's complicated. That is, we're trying to tell the gray of the story. When I did talk to her originally, she said to me, now, do I have any say in any of this? And, and I had to say, no, you don't. Because uh, it's always better to tell the truth right off the bat. And I said, I'm going to tell everybody's side, but I will tell your side of things. And I think that was very important to her. I think that she really wanted her story told, and I think she really wanted to be heard. Um, and, you know, by telling everybody's side, including hers, I think she was ac- actually ultimately very happy with that. Did either of you ever consider telling the Nancy Kerrigan story? Well, for my film, I I did spend some time on the Nancy Kerrigan story as well. She, unfortunately, had made a deal with NBC for the Olympics that she was exclusive and couldn't do an interview with me. Nancy was a great story. It's a very simple story. It's very heroic. It's a rocky story. But there's there's not something that reflects larger about our culture uh, in the way that Tanya's did. Also, you know... I wasn't interested in telling the story about the girl who, you know, gets hit and overcomes it and wins the silver. I thought that was just much more tr- traditional. Uh, maybe the sequel can be I, Nancy, but this one was I, Tanya. I mean, I, it sounds like she has genuinely just disconnected from this story, this part of her life. Well, I, I would never want to speak for Nancy Kerrigan. I've never met her. Um, but I, I imagine it's just that irritating drunk uncle at the party that you just want to shut up. She's kind of like, get over it already. Nancy will always be remembered for Wounded Knee. She's always going to be linked with Tanya. It's always going to be Nancy and Tanya, Nancy and Tanya, Nancy and Tanya. You never hear one without the other. But I don't think she ever would have wanted the attention that she got. So Nancy pretty much moved on. 
both of you are very willing to live in the shades of gray, which I admire. I think I'm the same way. I think the most compelling stories are that way. Nevertheless, there is this sort of central question around this story about Tanya Harding, whether she knew in advance of this plot, whether she had a sort of hand in conspiring to take out Nancy Kerrigan. A, how much do you want to know? You know, capital K-N-O-W. And will we ever... And does that change the way we sort of ultimately view this story? I mean, when I was making this film and from all of the evidence that was compiled and all of the interviews I did, I was pretty convinced that she knew beforehand, which is not what she admitted to. Were you involved at all in the planning of... Of course not. Does it... um Um, Everybody that out there that truly knows me knows that I was not involved in any of the planning or anything. It just, it seemed so unlikely that she was not privy to this information and was, you know, to what extent she conspired, I don't know. But do I care? Ultimately, no. Because I think in in the court of public opinion, she was convicted. And I think that the questions of the story are more interesting than the extent of her complicity. They're very unreliable witnesses, all of them. So I didn't know who to believe. What I, what I was more interested was the themes of the story that we talked about earlier, about memory and truth and class and, you know, the things that we tell women they're supposed to be in, in, in this world. That, to me, ultimately were bigger talking points than whether she knew or didn't know, because I, I just assumed, well... I'll never really know. I wasn't there. You know what? People are going to believe what they want to believe in the past or or anything. And like I said before, I really don't give a damn. I don't care because those people aren't in my life. The people that know me know me and like me for me. Nanette Burstein directed the 30 for 30 documentary The Price of Gold, and Stephen Rogers wrote the screenplay for I, Tanya, which is nominated for three awards at this Sunday's Oscars. That film is currently in theaters, and you can find the documentary The Price of Gold in iTunes. It's three bucks. Go check it out. And as always, if you haven't heard our series of audio documentaries, be sure to listen to those. They are in this same podcast feed, or you can find them at 30for30podcast.com. We'll have news about our next season real soon, so keep your eye out. This episode was produced by Nina Ernest with help from Ryan Nantel, Vindy Anton, Taylor Barfield, Aaron Leiden, Jennifer Thorpe, Adam Newhouse, and Jenna Anthony. Special thanks to Allison Villasenor. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.